Welcome to Voices, a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Here, we're seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives. Hello, everybody. My name is Francesca Fairbairn, and I work with IHRB. And today, I'd like to welcome two giants from the shipping world, uh, Andrew Stevens, who's Executive Director of the Sustainable Shipping Initiative, and Simon Bennett, who's General Manager for Sustainable Development at Swire Shipping. So we're bringing together this conversation today in order to mark the International Day of the Seafarer, and to discuss a little bit SSI's work with IHRB and Rafto Foundation on developing a code of conduct for seafarers. So I'd like to hand over to Andrew, who's going to introduce the um, Sustainable Shipping Initiative and its work to date on seafarer labour and human rights. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Thank you, Francesca. I'd like to run through uh, a very brief introduction to the SSI and, and then turn the attention to this piece of work, uh, as Francesca mentioned, that we're working on together with IHRB and the Rafto Foundation. So the SSI is, is a multi-stakeholder collective of like-minded leaders driving change through cross-sectoral collaboration to contribute to a more sustainable maritime industry. With its 15 members who are spanning the shipping value chain, and they cover the value chain from ship owners and charters to shipyards, maritime product equipment and service providers, banks, ship finance, insurance providers, classification societies, and sustainability non-profit organizations. The SSI is working on a range of issues driven by its roadmap to enable and, and further sustainable shipping. Things decarbonisation, which is a very hot topic, as we all know, seafarers, labour and human rights and responsible ship recycling, plus circularity in shipping is, is a new piece of work that we've just been engaging in. Turning attention to the, the work which we are discussing in this podcast, uh, this is, as mentioned, on the seafarers, labour and human rights from a systemic challenge perspective. And we launched this piece of work in November 2020, together with IHRB and the Rafto Foundation, in light of those systemic challenges that create labour and human rights risks for seafarers worldwide, which has very much to a large degree been highlighted by the ongoing crew change crisis driven by the COVID pandemic. At its peak last year, over 200,000 seafarers were stranded at sea, due to the crew change restrictions, which are very much still ongoing as today, driven by the COVID crisis. Alongside this increased public awareness, there is a growing demand from consumers, investors and business partners, plus governments and, and civil society for transparent and sustainable supply chains that address human rights along with those environmental concerns, which are very much at the fore of everybody's agenda today. We need to recognize that shipping is a core part of the supply chain, as well as the fact that it is the seafarers who are making sure that these goods can be transported around the globe. We all have a responsibility to play in and an active role in safeguarding their rights and holding the industry to account. For us, uh, as we see and as we engage with the industry, charters, financial stakeholders and others can raise the bar in the industry by joining together with ship owners and operators, demanding this transparency on labour and human rights for seafarers, and then use this information in, in decision making and their due diligence processes. So this is our endeavour, and we can touch a little bit more in a short while on how we're going to go about this. Thanks, Francesca. 
Great, thanks, Andrew, for that introduction on SSI and um, seafarers' human rights and on this project in particular. So turning now to Simon. Hi, Simon, welcome. I'd just like to ask you to perhaps say a little bit about Swire Shipping, what its priorities are when it comes to human rights and what you're seeing as a ship owner in relation to seafarers' rights. Thank you, Francesca. So good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everybody, uh, depending on where you are. You need to bear in mind that I'm an ex-seafarer, so this is all close to my heart. I've been there, I've done that. So I empathise with the guys who've been left on board for longer than they expected. I work for Swire Shipping at the moment. Last year, when the COVID crisis hit us, we had a bulk division and a liner division. The bulk division is tramping worldwide, and the liner division has got 14 trade routes crisscrossing the Pacific Ocean, serving the Pacific Islands. So two very different markets there. But, but both the bulkers and the liners touch Southeast Asia, Asia Pacific on many of their voyages. The company itself, the parent company, is 150 years old next year. And we pride ourselves that the people have always been very, very important to us. If you don't take care of your people, you may as well be running a dumb barge outfit. I think IMO's got some fancy new name for them as unmanned, non-self-propelled barges or, or whatever. But we would be nowhere if we didn't take care, respect and value the seafarers we've got on the ships. But it's uh, the whole sh the shipping value chain and the shipping operations themselves. There's an awful lot of moving parts. When the COVID pandemic hit us last year, it's fair to say that the world had experienced nothing like this. Nobody knew where it was coming from, how it was being transmitted, how uh, virulent um, it was. So in the early days that there was a lot of um, investigation and changing of direction, finding out where we were. That pretty much settled down by the middle of the year. But we had, along with, I think, very nearly every other shipping company in the world, effecting crew changes was incredibly difficult. The guys on board don't know when they're going to get off. And the guys who've gone home, who've finished their leave, don't know when they're going to be coming back to the ships and start earning money again. So it was a pretty vexatious situation for everybody. We, we initiated a number of uh, different things last year to try and make their life better on the ships. But the fact is, they sign a contract, they go to a ship expecting to work a certain period, and they have every right to expect to go home when they've when they've done their time. And in, in many cases, that wasn't possible. Maybe we can go into that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, and in fact, arguably, one of the most damaging in terms of mental health of that was the not knowing when they were going to be able to get home. And of course, not being able to affect crew change was because governments or port authorities were not were just simply not allowing any seafarers to disembark in their countries. And of course, this resulted in the Global Maritime Forum and others um, creating the Neptune Declaration, which was a kind of call to action for companies, governments, etc., to to open up ports to allow seafarers to go home on leave and for other seafarers on board ships and also a call to chartering companies and others to not put pressure on ship owners to not affect crew change because it would impact on delivery dates and costs. And Andrew said um, at one point in the crisis, it was up to 200,000 seafarers uh, trapped at sea. I think others have put the figure higher than that at 400,000 even at its peak. And indeed the UN Global Compact 
puts the figure at 800,000 because, as Simon said, you have the equivalent number of uh, workers at home unable to unable to get on board ship to begin their contracts. So depending on which way you look at it, quite a vast range. But either way, even at its smallest, a very big number. So out of the Neptune Declaration came the UN Global Compact Due Diligence Guidance for Crew Change, uh, which is a, a fantastic document for charterers, for container cargo owners, customers, ship owners, and everyone to try and ensure that seafarers are keeping, you know, are being allowed to go home. They're not exceeding the 11-month maximum as written out in the Maritime Labour Convention. And that that was a discrete piece of work, and I recommend um, anyone have a look at that, but it was very particular to the crew change crisis. And the work that, that we are doing, SSI, RAFTO and IHRB, on the Seafarers Code of Conduct is very much more than that. It is a much more about comprehensive, across-the-board human rights due diligence. So if I can pass back to Andrew, perhaps you'd like to talk us through a little bit the process of creating the Code of Conduct and how in exactly it looks. It is more comprehensive than the Crew Change Due Diligence Guidance released by the UN Global Compact. Andrew. Yeah, great. Thank you, Francesca. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, and you're touching on there, it, it's it's going beyond the pandemic or uh, COVID crisis, and it, and it, and its aims are, are to tackle those underlying and systemic issues. And 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 as Simon mentioned there, and it's been uh, said by many in the industry that the people are the oxygen of the industry, the, the people are the assets in the industry. And and as I mentioned, you know goods wouldn't turn up at our homes where 90% of the world trade is moved by sea. But it's very much an out of sight, out of mind. So it, it, with, with the layering that happens in terms of the responsibilities and ownership of engaging seafarers on contracts uh, with ship owners, operators or, or, or charters is quite a complex uh, maze to understand and, and work through sometimes. And so our, our work is aiming at tackling these underlying issues and, and very much going beyond the ILO's Maritime Labour Convention and, and focuses on, you know, very much valuing our seafarers and, and, and the full spectrum of their, their human rights. It aims, as I mentioned, to address the systemic risks and impacts experienced by the seafarers through two parts, really. One, emphasizing the rights in the MLC that are not being adequately enforced, and two, covering the rights and issues that are important to seafarers but not currently covered in the MLC. And, and that is an example is, is, you know, prioritizing mental health included by providing mental health support and access to free and confidential counseling for seafarers, or even providing employee assistance programs, including financial literacy training or support. And, and, and much of this is available to shore-based staff, um, but is very often uh, and mostly missed in, in considering the seafarers uh, who are actually as Simon said, you know, working through the challenges of trying to operate on board, they're living on board. There's there's very few industries where you live where you work, twenty four seven for several months, and when they are disembarked and and on the rotation of their contracts, they don't really know when they're coming back or which vessel and who with. So, in terms of process, uh, Francesca, you you asked there how we're going about this. 
Um, in order for us to get this right, and I think it's to make sure that we get this right for the longer term uh, and embed something in the industry that, that can live and, and address these underlying systemic risks. So we set about ensuring a robust process around the development of this code of conduct, and we reached out to a wide range of, of stakeholders, consulted on its fit, and we've taken into consideration the feedback, both from charters, chip owners, banks, law firms, and some sector-specific forums, uh, associations, and, and key actors in the industry. And, and we take this into consideration in, in, in refining our work uh, and the development of the code as far as we are drafted so far. And to ensure that the code is actually adopted, because we don't want this to be a desktop and a desk drawer uh, exercise, um, so to ensure it's adopted and, and, and secures progress over, over that long term, uh, we're also developing a self-assessment tool, which sets out the guidance on how to ensure and assure that the different elements are met together with what evidence can support the verification of this so the parties can verify and scrutinize between um, each other as to the progress being made and, and evidence that. And that helps the industry be held to account. Um, we're currently in discussions with a leading industry actor on taking the self-assessment requirements into its portfolio, which will support and enable the independent verification and visibility not on any individual actor's progress, but the industry progress at large. And we aim to do this by not reinventing the wheel, but um, adopting their standard structure and terminology, uh, which will enable that faster adoption and support transparency between the charter parties. This will also then assist the charters in their due diligence process, as I mentioned, and, and in particular, the procurement related decision making. And we aim to be launching the code of conduct and the uh, self-assessment guidance tool together in October of 2021, so that it's, uh, it's clear as to what we're trying to achieve, but also how to enable the industry to achieve it. Fantastic. Thanks, Andrew. And indeed, just on the consultation, other organisations in the shipping industry or relevance to the shipping industry that we have either either officially consulted with or, or shared the document with and asked for their feedback includes, of course, shipping managers, the International Transport Workers Federation and various others. So we really have consulted across the board on this, as Andrew says, to ensure that everyone who will who this code of conduct will touch is fully engaged and on board with the thing so perhaps with the with the documents and the project so Simon perhaps I could turn to you now just uh, specifically about what this means for for a ship owner as a ship owner um, are entering into contracts of a freightment and we secure um, long-term cargo agreements increasingly the major clients that we deal with are getting more and more thorough on the vetting um, and we have no problem with that at all we're happy to work with companies that care about their supply chain um, the vetting questionnaires that we, we answered in the past used to contain questions about carbon footprints etc but increasingly now they're drilling down very deeply into how we treat our seafarers. And as I said, we have no problem with that at all. I have had one example of a 156 page questionnaire from one client, which covered very nearly everything we do. And I'm happy that we could answer probably 90% of what they asked us. But it's a matter of, of treating your employees with respect. And if you employ them on a fixed length contract, then it's incumbent on us to, to get them off at the right time and to make sure their time on board is healthy, is safe, um, but it's also mentally healthy for them. We offer free access to mental um, health 
uh, hotlines, both for the ship's crews and for our office staff. It's been tough for them in the last year as well. Um, we've also we've dramatically expanded the internet cover that we allow um, the guys on board to have. We provide um, allowances for socials on board, which maybe they'd rather be having a social with their family, but if you can't get them off, at least you can give them some time off to, to unwind and relax. In fact, it's never, of course, completely straightforward on just, just provide loads and loads of Wi-Fi because that might mean that they go into their rooms and they, they're perhaps spending time on their phone and not interacting with their crew. And if that goes on for many, many months at a time, you know, that can be deleterious in itself to, to mental health. So these things aren't straightforward and need to be managed carefully. I think the Wi-Fi is a very good point. We now give them 12 hours free internet per day. Day, not, not that they can use 12 hours a day, each of them. But the danger with that is that if there is an issue at home, now they've got instant access to it and, and they, they can track it on an hour by hour basis. That may well, they may actually leave them worse off because they know there's an issue and they can't get home to help their wife or their children or whatever. So it certainly is a double-edged sword, but uh, I don't think we, we have any choice. We have to give them the access to their loved ones back home and their loved ones back home can talk to them, see them and, and know that they are as well as can be expected in the circumstances. Right. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, it sounds to me uh, as if when companies begin to implement this code of conduct that they can look to swire shipping for some best practice examples in a lot of in a lot of areas so thank you very much for talking to us today Simon and thank you Andrew very much as well is there anything else that you wanted to add um, either of you before I uh, close up I see the declarations that have been made and I see the documents that have been pushed out by UNGC by IMO which have gone all the way to the top but we need to start seeing some action rather than just, just words. I think it's incumbent on us as ship owners to work with the port authorities, to work with the clients, to work with the regulators, to ensure that we don't just meet the minimum standards of the MLC, but we actually go way beyond that, as is listed or determined in, in this code here, just because seafarers are in a very peculiar situation, as you say. They do their work and then they live on top of the shop, if you like. So they can't get away from it. They need to be treated specially. We need to appreciate the working conditions they're under and we need to make it as good as is reasonably possible for them. And I think that this code goes a long way to identifying the various items that need to be covered by all shipping companies to give them a, a proper standard of living and to show them respect. Thank you, Simon. And I very much um, hope that this code of conduct will serve that purpose, will ensure that action actually does happen on the ground uh, or at sea in this case. Thank you very much um, to both of you for, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you.